Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Welcome into our latest installment of the Legal Faceoff podcast here on WGN Radio. I'm Joe Brandon. As always, we're joined by Tina Martini of McDermott, Will and Emery. Tina, how's it going? Great. How are you, Joe? Doing well. We're also joined by Rich Lenkoff of Downey and Lenkoff. Rich, how's it going? Hey, Joe. Big show today. Lots of great topics. Great guests. Excited. Very big topics. Very big guests as well. And we start with our most esteemed and coveted friend of the podcast and Gloria Allred. Be sure to check out her Netflix special, Seeing All Red, currently streaming. Gloria, thanks as always. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for inviting me. So, Gloria, we are all still reeling from the leaked draft Supreme Court opinion from earlier this week, authored by Supreme Court Justice Alito, which, as it currently stands, clearly overturns Roe versus Wade. Please tell us your thoughts on the leak and whether you think the Supreme Court is going to follow through on overturning Roe. I absolutely believe that. There's a very high likelihood that uh, the United States Supreme Court will strike down, will reverse uh, Roe v. Wade, the 1973 United States Supreme Court decision, which found that a woman has a constitutional right to choose safe and legal abortion, at least at certain stages of her her pregnancy, and that the government cannot prohibit it, for example, in the first trimester. They can regulate in the second trimester, uh, and they can only restrict in the last trimester. That has been the precedent since 1973, 49 years. It has been called a super precedent because it has been affirmed in other decisions, Casey, for example, um, and it, it is very shocking, disturbing, and it really is catastrophic that we find ourselves most likely when the final opinion is uh, published, uh, probably in the next six weeks, in a position where states will once again be able to criminalize abortion and half of the states have indicated they will ban it, restrict it. Uh, or criminalize it. Gloria, uh, you obviously, maybe not obvious to all of our listeners, but you have a history with this case. Uh, In addition to your stellar career advocating on behalf of women's rights and civil rights in general, you actually represented uh, Roe, the lead plaintiff in this case, the actual plaintiff in this case, Norma McCorvey. Tell us briefly how you came to represent uh, the plaintiff in arguably the most significant and most well-known case in American legal history. Well, it was actually after the U.S. Supreme Court decision of Roe v. Wade, I was at a big pro-choice rally in Washington, D.C., and Jane Roe came up to me and introduced herself to me, and uh I said, oh, are you going to be speaking today at this big rally? And she said, no. I said, 
really? Why not? And she said, they have not invited me to speak. And I haven't been invited to speak at other pro-choice events either. Well, that was very surprising to me. I didn't know why that was the situation. And she asked me if I could help her to have her voice, which I said I would. And so after that, I began to represent her and help her to have opportunities uh, to speak out in support of choice, which she did very well for a number of years. Ultimately, she decided to switch and become anti-choice, switch sides. Um, she continued to contact, have contact with me because she was my client. I will never communicate what she said. But ultimately, some years later, she made a deathbed confession uh, on tape that, in fact, she never really was anti-choice. She was always pro-choice and essentially indicated that she had received economic support from the anti-choice side, which she needed very much. And that is why she became anti-choice. Uh, so that's the story with uh, Jane Roe. But of course, I had other reasons for being pro-choice, and that had to do with my personal life experience when I was in my 20s in the 1960s. And I went to Mexico on a vacation and uh, was raped at gunpoint by a doctor uh, whom I had gone out with. And uh, I came back to California and uh, learned that I was pregnant and also found out to my horror because I wasn't a lawyer at that time. I was a teacher uh, and I found out that abortion was not legal in California at that time. So I had to, like many millions of other women, find someone who would give me a back alley abortion. And I did find someone and he performed it. And then I was left in a bathtub hemorrhaging and in, you know, surrounded by a pool of my own blood. Uh, at some point, uh, an ambulance took me to the hospital, although not called by the person who did it. And I was 106 degree fever and packed in ice to bring down my fever from the infection caused by this illegal abortion. And uh, as I say in the Netflix documentary, Seeing All Red, uh, the nurse said to me, I hope this teaches you a lesson. Mm. It wasn't the lesson she wanted me to learn, however, because she was anti-choice. It did teach me a lesson, and that was that abortion should be safe and legal and affordable and available. And that is this horrible situation that I faced is one that is going to be faced by many millions of women if Roe v. Wade is struck down in the next six weeks. So, Gloria, please tell us, in addition to clearly the um, huge impact on abortion rights that will occur if Roe gets overturned, please tell us about some of the other likely impacts um, beyond abortion rights that this decision could have? Well, it could likely have uh, ramifications, Christina, on other rights as well, like 
the Griswold case, the right to contraception for marital couples and others, like uh, on marriage equality, sometimes called same-sex marriage, because if there is no right to privacy or liberty uh, that, or due process protection or equal protection, uh, then marriage equality could be uh, a thing of the past. Uh, in addition, of course, interracial marriage, the Griswold, the um, Loving versus Virginia United States Supreme Court decision, uh, that could be impacted as well. So we are on a very slippery slope. I do expect some of the language in the draft opinion to change by the time it is ultimately published. But uh, I am very concerned about where this could lead in the future. And Hillary Clinton just indicated that that is a major concern to her as well. Gloria, last question here on Legal Faceoff is, you know, what's the big picture? Um, obviously, elections have consequences, and this is a good example of that. What do you think that people should do uh, to deal with this decision if it comes down the way we think it will. Uh, what's well, the next? Yeah, yeah, thank you very much. That's a, so important, the action uh, plan. Uh, and there will be national protests all over this nation. Uh, next Saturday, May 14th, I will be speaking in Los Angeles as a featured speaker at Los Angeles City Hall at the rally that will be held here in Los Angeles. I hope everyone will go to all of the rallies uh, all over the country, including men. And feel free to bring your children as well. Um, but what we need to do is what Mother Jones said, don't agonize, organize. We need to organize. We need to get out the vote. We need to vote out the anti-choice members of Congress, United States Senate, in our state legislatures as well. We need to pass the Women's Health Protection Act in the United States Senate, which will be blocked by anti-choice Republicans. We need to uh, change laws in each state that is banning abortion. We need to provide travel funds for women who are going to be forced to go to other states to get an abortion, haven states like California. And those who will be most impacted, of course, are the young women and the poor women and the rural women and the women of color. So we have much to do, but we are outraged and we are going to do it. And we are going to vote as though our lives depend on it because they do. Seeing All Red is available on Netflix right now. Gloria, as always, we truly appreciate and honor your expertise and time with us today. Thank you very much. In the Legal Faceoff podcast, our next guest is Tennessee Representative Mark Hall of the 24th District. Representative, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me today. So last month, the Tennessee legislature unanimously passed a bill that would require drunk drivers to pay child support if they are responsible for the death of one or both parents of a minor. 
you introduced this bill representative, which is now headed for the governor's desk. Please tell us more about it and how it came about. Well, basically, if, if a parent of a minor child dies at the hands of a drunk driver, the convicted drunk driver is then responsible for child support. I drafted the bill open-ended so that uh, the judges and the, uh, the DAs could have their, use their own discretion in holding both the drunk driver accountable and also protecting our most valuable resource, which is our children here in the great state of Tennessee. Representative, this came about because of a specific incident uh, from one of your constituents, right? Please tell us of their story briefly and why, uh, why that drove you to this litigation. I had a constituent that, that brought this, this idea to me. Fourteen other states have taken a step in this direction, but for whatever reason hadn't had the ability to cross the finish line with it. So a constituent brought this to me and asked me if I would be interested in drafting this, in this bill. Uh, it, was, she was, uh, it was a relative of hers that, uh, that whose parent had died uh, at the hands of a drunk driver. So she handed it off to me and I met with legal. We kicked some ideas around and uh, we drafted the bill in, in sort of a nice neat little package that made it very sellable to the legislator. And, uh, and we were very fortunate to cross the finish line with it. So representative, aside from the very important goal of financial support, what are some of the other goals that you're hoping to achieve with this legislation? And for example, how does it get drunk drivers the help that they may need, particularly if we have a situation, for example, where there's an underlying addiction that may have led to the drunk driving? Uh, great question. Normally, if, if someone got a DUI, they would have a 17% chance of getting a second. But if they had a second DUI, they would have a 70% chance of getting a third. So this is a, an ongoing behavior problem. So we wanted to send a message not only to the citizens of Tennessee, but across this country is that if you get behind the wheel while drinking, is that you're going to be held responsible. And, and then fortunately or unfortunately, sometimes the only way to get their attention is through their pocketbook. Representative, thank you so much for the efficient insight. We all know the legal world is complex and high pressure. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all of your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. Continuing on the Legal Faceoff podcast, we now welcome in Florida State Senator Tina Polsky running for re-election. Find out more about her campaign at TinaPolskyForSenate.com. Senator, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Senator, we appreciate it. Governor DeSantis in your state recently signed into law SB4, which basically strips Disney of its county-like authority to manage its property and provide services as it sees fit. Uh, DeSantis called for this bill after Disney suspended campaign contributions and said it would work to repeal a parental rights in education bill. You said that this move by the governor was performative. You said it's revenge government. Please explain your position. Yeah, revenge governance, uh, meaning that there's no other reason to be looking at this tax structure except for the fact that Disney spoke out. It's been in place for 50 years. It was never a problem. 
There was a study done a while back that said everything is fine. And the way they rushed this legislation through during a special session about redistricting just goes to show that they didn't care about the substance of the matter of whether or not this tax structure is the right thing to do. There are no studies. There was no testimony. It was just revenge governance uh, done as quickly as possible. Yeah. What is the parental rights and education bill? Because I know it's getting a lot of uh, play, but I think and I've heard you state that it's not really what people think it is and maybe not what the governor is. Uh, he's not really explaining it accurately, in your opinion. Is that right? Right. This is the one that we call Don't Say Gay Bill. Right. And what it does is it restricts conversation about uh, gender identity or um, sexual orientation in K through three. But it also says that um, any conversation about those topics has to be age appropriate above those grade levels. And we already have standards in place through the Department of Education on sex education and when different topics are allowed. Um, so a lot of people are saying, you know, calling us terrible names if we if we don't like the bill and saying, you know, we support teaching sex ed to kindergartners. That's completely not true. Uh, what we tried to do when we were hearing the bill is to amend it so that there could be no discussion about sex ed at all, which isn't even necessary because it doesn't happen in those grade levels. And they said no. So that just goes to prove that all they cared about were targeting gay students, gay teachers, gay families, that they didn't want to talk about it. Um, you know, kids talk about their families, especially in the younger grades. It's part of like the natural assignments of things that they have to do. And if you can't talk about it, uh, if a teacher will feel chill that she can't or he can't respond to a question, then we're just taking away the natural conversation that would go on. And my point was, we want to teach these students to be compassionate, kind, giving adults. And so we, they should be exposed to all kinds of people and learn different family structures. And nobody's grooming anybody. Uh, but the last thing I just want to point out about this bill is that I asked the senator who sponsored it on the floor why he's doing this. And it took a very long time for him to finally admit that there are too many gay kids coming out. And he literally said those words. I have it on my Twitter uh, page, the actual clip of him saying that kids want to be celebrities, just too many kids coming out. So what does that tell you what the purpose of this bill is? It's to stop discussion about gay people. Yeah, that's a fairly shocking statement to hear from an elected official. Um, but, you know, if you put aside, uh, you know, your feelings on the bill for a second and just put on, you know, look at it from a straight economic perspective. I mean, tourism is such an important part of Florida economy. And to think that this, you know, company that's been thriving in Florida uh, it's, you know, one of the biggest tourist attractions in the world and pumping billions of dollars into the local economy for years. It would seem like a strange move for any governor, let alone a Republican governor who presumably, is, you know, ran on uh, being a friend to business and drawing more business into Florida. It's truly shocking how the Republican Party has changed all over the country, but particularly in Florida, that they would go after not only a private business, the private business in Florida, right? Tourism is the number one industry. Disney World is the largest attraction. They're the largest private employer. So, and his, his, his supporters were blocking an entrance to Disney. So I uh, shot back, what are you trying to do? Cut our sales tax base? We don't have income tax here in Florida. We don't have our tourist tax and our sales tax. 
we're going to be in trouble. So what is the fiscal goal? What is the end goal here? It makes no sense whatsoever. And, you know, how can the governor interfere in private business? Not only that, there was another bill, SB or HB7, rather, they call it the Stop Woke Act, that tells businesses how they can train their own employees. If Disney is training their employees to be more open-minded towards different kinds of customers that come to them, that's their business decision, and they have every right to do so. How a government can come in and say there's too much woke, whatever the heck that means, nonsense that um, companies are teaching their employees, who cares? You know, as a state uh, senator, I don't care what they're doing. It's not illegal. Uh, they're not violating any laws. And they've created a law to say if someone's uncomfortable with training, that they can then sue. So not only are they interfering in businesses, they are increasing litigation avenues for the Don't Say Gay Bill and the Stop Woke Act. It's truly insane. Senator, turn your attention to another issue in the news and obviously dominating the news this week is the seemingly imminent decision by the Supreme Court to overturn Roe in the wake of the leaked Alito memo from uh, or brief from earlier this week. Uh, we were discussing this with Gloria Allred just a few minutes ago. Uh, in Florida, there is a ban on abortions after 15 weeks. So there's also no exception for rape or incest. Uh, what does abortion look like in a few weeks in Florida if Roe is overturned? So it's not good. Uh, we also had a recent decision on a court case that took seven years where someone has to wait 24 hours to get an abortion. And that um, we didn't think that that was going to happen. So it's just really all coming down um, on women here in the state. I think that, you know, the opinion won't be out until whenever in the summer. And I think when we come back for if Ron DeSantis is reelected in November, if we come back, they are going to seek to ban abortion completely. Uh, just like some other states have done, just like the, the states that will be triggered by the ruling in Roe v. Wade. So I am very concerned for what will happen to Florida. And I'm just making sure everyone knows a vote for Ron DeSantis is a vote to ban abortion completely. And Florida is a very large state. Uh, if you live in the South, it takes you seven hours to get uh, out of the state going directly north. And Georgia will probably follow suit. So there will be nowhere in driving distance that you can go to get an abortion. Uh, so I'm very, very concerned that we will go even further than 15 weeks. 15 weeks is wrong to begin with for so many reasons. Women get amnios after 16 weeks. So the 15 week ban on abortion is terrible to begin with, especially no exception for rape or incest. And I really fear we're going to go even worse after he gets reelected. Hopefully he doesn't get reelected. Again, Florida State Senator Tina Polsky is running for reelection. Find out more about her campaign at TinaPolskyForSenate.com. Senator, thank you so much for the time and insight today. Thanks for having me. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. 
In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Continuing on the Legal Faceoff podcast, our next guest is Katie Leonard of The Leonard Firm. For more information, check out theleonardfirmpc.com. Katie, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Katie, you're breaking the internet. You've got 1.5 million views of your one TikTok video, 12 and a half thousand comments. Uh, and then another one of your TikToks has, did I get this right, 2.9 million views? I think it's closer to seven now, which is, it's insane. Seven million views. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I- my information is already outdated. Uh, <laughs> first of all, we're, we're going to talk about sort of your, your methods in a, in a moment, which obviously are quite successful. Let's get to the heart of your first video, the one that talks about uh, the top five professions that women should avoid marrying because I'm not even sure I get that right. These are the five most difficult professions that you deal with when you are representing women in divorce cases. Um, Talk to us first about what prompted you to come up with this list. Actually, the list was given to me by an older uh, female lawyer that mentored me back when I was maybe a first year associate. And I just thought, oh, that's so funny. And it just stuck in my head because as I went Um, you know, through my career and had cases with individuals in these professions. I want to be clear, it's not everybody, but the personality types that tend to be drawn to these professions fit the bill quite well. And I just, you know, I'd represent someone against a pilot and I would think "That's, that's weird that that was on the list and cops and well, that was weird. That's on the list too. So it's just something I noticed after almost 14 years, I thought, wow, I have a good bit of data now. And this list is actually pretty accurate. So I just, I was just being silly and I made a TikTok video and apparently it's pretty spot on. So Katie, what is it about these five professions specifically? You got firemen, police officers, military surgeons and pilots. And notably, I'm shocked to hear that lawyers aren't on that list. Yeah, so Richie, no, I just pulled the words right out of my I mean, mouth, which I can't believe lawyers are not on this list. Yeah, so, right. So what is it about those five professions? What kind of characteristics do those individuals have that make them difficult opponents in uh, divorce cases? Um, the, the one that's far and wide, just generally, is the control. I mean, all of those professions have an element of control. The, the pilot is the top level. He controls everybody that's going on in the airplane, everybody underneath them. Um, military, obviously, a very um, hierarchical kind of uh, structure in your job and, you know, rules and following rules and authority is very important. Same thing with police officers. They really do tend to be the personality types. Um, that become police officers do tend to be very controlling. And what I get from police officers more than any of those others is telling me how to do my job. Like they know what's best. They're the law, they're the authority. So um, they can be very difficult, especially the police officers that have military backgrounds. So um, the list that I made, it probably wasn't clear because you can't really clarify a lot in three minutes, is that having a case against them is what's very difficult. And that that's because they're so used to not being challenged and not being questioned that when you, you know, you 
cross-examine them in court or you call them out in discovery or in a deposition and they get very angry. Um, they tend to be very much, I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to scorch the earth. You're not going to beat me. You're not going to win. It becomes more of this power struggle than it really does about the merits of the case. So, and I've just seen it across the board. It's shocking. Do you think, you know, it's a really interesting nuance you just mentioned that it's their difficulty when a divorce is going on. Do you think there's a correlation at all between folks in these, in these professions and the likelihood to get divorced? I mean, I do, but that's what I see. So the, the people that are successful obviously don't come to me and hire me to sit and watch how their marriage is going. But um, if I look across my case list, you know, I've got about 60 right now, which is a lot for one person. And um, normally I would carry about 30 over the course of a year. And they tend to run about a year in length. Um, when I looked at just my entire, a composite of my entire um, career, there were a lot of hits for these five professions. Yeah, so. it's really, it's a great question, Tina, because it really begs the question of, you know, yes, they're difficult opponents. They're going to be difficult partners and husbands probably too, uh, leading to those divorces. And we know that statistics of people that get married and end divorce. So it goes to, it, it logic applies that probably difficult people to marry too. Um, so it begs the question, the counter is, what are some of the good professions that you should look for? If this is a factor in picking, <laughs> picking your potential uh, soulmate, what kind of professions do not generate uh, the difficulties that you see in these other five? I got that question on my TikTok video a couple of times. And it's, Who should I marry? It's kind of hard for me to go, oh, well, I, I basically have to think of a career that I've never seen before. Um, I tend to see, I don't see a lot of people in the creative industry. So um, artists, musicians. I don't know if they're getting married or not. Maybe, you know, I don't see a lot of athletes. I don't think there's a higher um, marriage rate for athletes. They tend to come to domestic lawyers for different reasons. Um, so I don't see it. The, the number one thing I could think of was creative fields, artists, creative engineering, graphic design, those kinds of people. I don't see a lot. And if I have, it wasn't standout in my mind. So let's talk a little bit about, so these are all men. I mean, I, I know that the article that we're working off of talks about men um, in the context of this conversation of these professions and so forth. If you were to um, characterize the, the, the type of women that I guess men should, for lack of a better way of putting it, wife up, what would your recommendation be? So I, I did a video. I could not come up with five professions that I see across the board with women. The most common professions that I saw, I think are just common to females in general, which was teachers and nurses. And I said in my video that I don't view those professions as being particularly difficult in a divorce. Um, where I got a lot of the fun and a lot of the heat was um, I said that stay-at-home moms were the profession to avoid. And so that kind of begged the question, well, that first of all, is that a profession, which I will say that I think it is. It's an unpaid one. But second, they would say, well, how do I know? I don't hire somebody that's a stay-at-home mom. So the, the you know, questions in that discussion are, are you a man that's seeking a stay-at-home wife? If that's something that you prefer, then you need to know this, that it's going to impact you long-term in your marriage. And second, if you go on a date and, this, and you're talking to a woman and she says, 
my dream is to stay at home and raise children, well, then you need to listen to what I just said, because this is a very, very difficult, probably the most common divorcing situation is involving stay-at-home moms. And stay-at-home moms, Katie, are having difficulty for obvious reasons, right? I mean, you stayed in your TikTok, uh, but the reasons are because, you know, they're not necessarily used to some of the challenges um, that are outside the home. Of course, what mm-hmm. you said is true. It's a very important uh, profession, a very difficult one. But uh, when they are now on their own, they're facing unique challenges that other uh, women who are maybe working outside the home don't. Yes. And I find that to be true the longer that they're married and the longer that they're out of the workforce. Um, you, I mean, look at the market right now. Everybody's it's the great, uh, what do they call it? The great hiring, the great um, I can't think of the resignation. Thank you. The great resignation. (laughs) And so the thought out there is, oh, there's tons of jobs. I can get a job if I want. But when you've been out of the marketplace and you're trained to do something, but maybe you have a degree and lots of people said, I have a nursing degree. Well, honey, you've got to be, you've got to pass your boards again. You know, are you going to go back to school and relearn all this information? You can't just walk into a hospital and get hired. So they don't really appreciate that, not to mention their lifestyle is going to completely change. And when they get back into the market, it usually is not enough money for them to live on, especially with teachers. So just the budget cuts that are going to happen, not understanding the financials that are involved in their lives, you'd be shocked. I mean, I'm in the South, so I think it's maybe a different depending on where you are, it's a different um, demographic, but they, I've had women that come in and I say, well, how much is your mortgage payment? I don't know. Well, how much do you own your house? I don't know. Where's your, where does your husband have his retirement account? I don't know. They don't know anything. So having to, first of all, learn all that information and then process it and then figure out how am I going to use my share of this to set myself up on an equal playing field with him? You're not. You're not going to be on an equal playing field with him. And that's where the difficulty comes in with them. So you really quickly talk to us about your uh, tremendous success in getting all these views. I mean, obviously, we're in a unique world now with social media and alternative marketing efforts. Uh, You've hit a home run with these uh, TikToks. You're going to continue. What's the next one? Give us a little sneak peek on a legal face off here. What's the next viral video that's going to get seven million uh, views? It's hard for me to imagine anything would get that many views that I would come up with. But um, I've, I, what I noticed from these two, I thought maybe I would just fool around and give some very general divorce information to people out there that can't really afford good, um, a good lawyer or maybe don't think of the strategy of some of these points. But um, what's really interesting is that people tend to be more interested in marriage than they are in divorce. And I find that to be, I find that to be wonderful. So I'm trying to come up with things, different things um, about being a step parent because I am a step parent and I was a step child. Um, things like that thing can help people within their marriage and hopefully avoid these pitfalls. Okay, one so. last really quick question. We'd be remiss in uh, not asking you this question that we're talking about here in a minute or two. The Amber Heard against Johnny Depp trial, more accurately, Johnny Depp against Amber Heard. What, what's your take on it? Who's winning? Amber Heard's been testifying this week really um, you know, heartfelt testimony, if you believe her, about some of the abuse that she's uh, been the victim of for many years. Of course, Johnny Depp is alleging that he is the victim. So who's winning? What do you make of the trial? What do you make of some of the weird stuff that we've heard over the last couple of weeks? 
I, I mean, can I just be candid in my own opinion? Um, yeah. I guess that's what you're asking. I think that he is just completely blowing her lawyers out of the water. Um, Dr. Curry in particular was an astonishing witness and the way that I don't know Amber Heard's lawyers, so I don't want to personally insult them or anything, but from what we see, the cross-examination of that expert was deplorable. I mean, it was one of the worst expert cross-examinations I've ever seen. So I deal with abuse allegations all the time, and it just doesn't fit the bill to me. I mean, the way that she behaves, the way that she recounts everything, to me, it's a bad acting performance. And I just, I thought Johnny came off as very credible. He didn't deny anything. He was, he admitted drug use. He admitted some pretty significant things. So I find him to be very credible. And I think the tape recordings um, are just a slam dunk for him. That's my personal opinion. So. Wow. Again, that's Katie Leonard of The Leonard Firm. Check out her website at theleonardfirmpc.com and her TikTok. And for the record, Katie, I hear podcast moderators make fantastic husbands. Thank you. Oh, good. I'll add it to my list. (laughs) Thanks for the time today. Thanks, guys. It's time for the Legal Grab Bag here on the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio. Pleased to welcome in our two guests for today's Legal Grab Bag, starting with Dan Lust, attorney at Garagos and Garagos. Also, you can check out some of his side work at conductdetrimental.com. Dan, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure, and it should be a lot of fun. Absolutely. We're also joined by Kevin Wells of WGN Radio. You can hear him doing news. You can hear him doing sports. Got a lot of good thoughts on the Bears and the Cubs. Kevin, what's up, buddy? Hey, how's it going, Joe? Good to talk to you, man. Thanks for well. Likewise, likewise. All right, Tina, uh, this is a topic we've been talking a lot on today's Legal Faceoff podcast, and we might as well just start with it here today on the Legal Grab Bag, abortion laws in the United States. Yeah, so we had the great privilege of talking to Gloria Allred earlier in our show, and our phones have been blowing up this entire week about the leaked draft Supreme Court opinion, which Justice Alito had written in early February which clearly overturns Roe v. Wade as it is currently drafted. I was actually in Washington, D.C. when this news broke, and it was pretty surreal um, what happened right after the news leaked on Monday night. There was a lot of police and protester activity. So this draft of the court opinion in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization would side with the state of Mississippi in defending a law that would ban almost all abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy and would undo the precedent set by both the 1973 Roe v. Wade case, as well as the reaffirmation of that decision in 1992's Casey. As we all know, those decisions protect the right to an abortion before the point of fetal viability and require that regulations limiting abortion access do not pose an undue burden. Um, So Chief Justice Roberts, right after this leak on Tuesday, confirmed the authenticity of this draft and also made it clear that it is not the court's final decision. He's ordered the marshal of the court to conduct an investigation into the leaker. Um, This clearly is a rather unprecedented development. Leaks like this are very rare, and internal sharing of drafts of opinions is clearly commonplace and is part of the process that goes into reaching a final decision and issuing an opinion. Um, Robert spoke highly of the level of trustworthiness and loyalty of the law clerks and other employees of the court. 
Um, he called this leak an affront to the court and said that to the extent the intention was to undermine the confidences placed in the court, that um, those efforts will not be successful. Not surprisingly, Democrats responded right away, um, pushing Congress to immediately codify abortion rights through legislation. President Biden said on Tuesday he's going to work with Congress to pass and sign that legislation. Republicans are also not very happy with this development and have also called for the sort of investigation that Roberts has said is underway. The court's expected to release its official ruling in the case, as Gloria Allred mentioned, probably within the next six weeks. And clearly, this is a developing story, Rich. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think there should be no surprise. Yeah, you know, we're all kind of shocked by it. But when you think about it, there should be no surprise uh, about this decision. You know, I mean, Dan, uh, Trump said on the campaign trail when he was running for president that I would nominate people to the Supreme Court who would overturn Roe. Guess what? He nominated people to the Supreme Court who are overturning Roe. So to me, that's not really surprising. I mean, what's a little surprising is the language of the decision. You know, it's really, and again, this is not a decision yet. So maybe it's an early draft. I mean, no one knows how these things work. We did a special podcast earlier in the week with a couple of former Supreme Court clerks. Um, and, you know, it's possible that you use, it's like, you know, anything else. It's a negotiation. You start off with the most extreme decision, the most extreme language, and maybe you work it back. So maybe this is an example of that. Again, I ultimately think the decision is going to be that they overturn Roe, but what was surprising to me was the language they use. You know, it's, it's really unusual for a sitting Supreme Court justice to uh, say that uh, a prior decision was egregious. So I wonder if that will be walked back a little. But ultimately, yeah, I think we're seeing what was promised, that there is a majority that is going to overturn Roe and Casey. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, going back a number of years, people were talking about this being a, a targeted attempt at the Supreme Court. Right. You want to stack the bench and every time you know, justice would be put up to be put on the bench. They would be asked these particular questions. So in that sense, it's not that much of a surprise, right? I think what is a surprise, and, uh, you know, you guys know where my background lies in sports. Uh, I don't know. This is a 50-year-old decision. Some would think, right, that stare decisis applies, that just some cases can't be touched, right? That's the, the law of the land. Not to say that that's necessarily what, what happened here, but at least in our, our sports world, um, even something, there's, a, there's an 100-year-old case that basically codifies baseball's antitrust exemption, this case federal baseball in 1922, and now you have lawyers coming out of the woodworks. Well, you can overturn a case from the 60s like Roe v. Roe versus Wade on, you know, and, and stare decisis doesn't mean anything. Maybe you can just take away baseball's antitrust exemption, right? So I think it's a, a larger point in the law. It's like, I don't know if, if the cases can just be overturned, right, for 50, 50 years old. I mean, you know, is, is can we overturn anything, 60, 70, 80? So, you know, I I, uh, I think that's maybe the point that people are looking into, right? At, w at what point can is, is something just sacred that we can't touch it? Um, you know, or is any, any prior case from the Supreme Court now kind of open season? Right. I mean, it is. It, you do wonder what other decisions that were almost super precedents can be overturned if this one was. But, Kevin, what are you hearing from, you know, from uh, from listeners and from people calling in? I mean, what's the general reaction to this news? I think a lot of people are just concerned and worried about, you know, family members and other people who live in other states. And, you know, should this be overturned? Should this draft actually lead to a change in this, like Dan said, a 50 year old law? I think. A lot of people are concerned for 
how are we going to get these people to safe havens? And we've seen the outcry from Mayor Lightfoot and Governor Pritzker both speaking out and said, it's not going to happen here in Illinois. We're going to remain a safe haven, especially for you know Republican states that surround Illinois, like Indiana and Kentucky. Um, we're going to see Illinois then become, you know, like I said, a safe haven for a lot of these people. I know that from callers and people who have called in and we, we've talked to people from Planned Parenthood, Illinois and Right to Life, Illinois, I would say Planned Parenthood, Illinois, obviously very they weren't surprised by the decision. They're obviously concerned. They you know, this could lead to an you know overturn of Griswold versus Connecticut. They're, they're worried about those things. And then Right to Life, Illinois, they're. They the the point that they doubled down on a lot this week was this is only abortion. This is, you know, we're we're working to overturn Illinois's very strict abortion laws. And, you know, they want a change in what happened with a couple of weeks ago when Governor Pritzker back in December of 2021, when he said we're going to take away the fact that minors no longer have to notify their parents of abortions. They believe Illinois's abortion laws are too um, too loose. And they want to make sure that they tighten them up and also give women a chance to choose life. So it's obviously concerning on all fronts for for women and uh, those matters. And but we've heard a variety of different opinions on the on the matter, for sure. Rich, you brought up former President Donald Trump. Let's move on to his fear of flying fruits. He hates he hates fruits. He hates vegetables. That's what the uh, that's what we've learned from this deposition. So, again, among the many lawsuits that Trump is still involved in, I mean, there's so many nonsensical lawsuits. But uh, one of them is that uh, he was sued for by human rights uh, demonstrators who were uh, uh, thrown out and attacked by some of his security guards. They sued him and in a deposition in October of 2021. Trump explained that in a 2016 event, he explained why he said, if you see someone about to throw a tomato, knock the hell out of them, I'll pay for their legal costs. And he explained the logic behind that statement by saying, hey, fruit and vegetables can be dangerous. He said that, uh, you know, pineapples, tomatoes. Uh, he said, well, I'm going to try to do it in my Trump voice, but it's very, very difficult. A tomato, a pineapple, a lot of other things they throw that can be dangerous. Um, and Trump's lawyers, that was a terrible Trump. Uh, it was barely even an impersonation. Trump's lawyers <laughs> have tried to, have tried to uh, sanction the lawyers for releasing this testimony. I mean, Trump has nonstop amounts of money, although he doesn't really pay the lawyers to defend these lawsuits. But, uh, Tina, uh, I guess tomatoes and pineapples could be very dangerous if they're coming out of the crowd. Yeah, I mean, this is just, you know, more of the same what I'd call nonsense. I mean, there's the fact that he said it right, which is nonsensical and a head scratcher in and of itself. But then there's the trying to keep that testimony out and not release it to the public, which I got to believe it's because he looked he just sounds as nonsensical as we're all saying he is for what he said in the first place. So it's just a head scratcher to me. And I guess I'm not surprised because there's a lot of things that have made me scratch my head since he was elected. So. Dan, what uh, have you ever had one of your litigants uh, complain about flying fruit or flying vegetables? Um, no, unless it's like a comedian and you're worried about like flying tomatoes, I, I could see that. Um, no, uh, I, I think, 
you know, from from I, I handle some high profile cases, and I and at least that I know in our cases, if someone's deposition testimony was leaked, there would be an issue, right? You'd go to the judge and say, "How did this get out?" Um, when it comes to someone like Donald Trump, though, I I think it's maybe even more expected, right? And I, my understanding, at least from reading the news articles, is that it wasn't necessarily like a pure leak. That portions of this transcript were released in part of a, a motion to compel. Uh, I think it was to try to get. Um, you know, the the lawyer's testimony or Michael Cohen's testimony. So it wasn't like a, I don't know, an unsolicited crazy leak. It was part of a, a motion. So certainly less problematic than like one of these. Uh, uh, how did how did this thing get out? It obviously came from either the other attorney or the court reporter. Well, so, my, you know, I yeah. my favorite part is like Trump is still obsessed with these things and still worried about like, is this really what does Trump think that he's got a stellar reputation except for people thinking that he's worried about fruit? Like. There's probably a million other things that you've got to worry about in terms of your reputation, Trump, besides this minor uh, deposition testimony. Can, can I say something like I, maybe it's a reasonable fear that you're that someone would throw fruit at you. But it, I don't know, making a stink about it and making a stink creates this type of news. Right. To your point, Rich, like just let it go. Right. I don't it's not really a story if it gets out there like, yeah, I'm sure it's probably a reasonable fear that someone's going to throw something at him, be it fruit or, you know, maybe something uh, harder, like a golf ball, like we see in a uh, college football sometimes. But like, I don't know, you know, I think the, the story is his, his, uh, you know, anger that it's being released. I don't know. It seems like a nothing burger. I mean, you're scared of people throwing stuff. Big deal. He should catch it. Like uh, who is the Cleveland guardian the other day, Joe, who uh, caught the, uh, the bottle that was thrown at him at the Yankee stadium. He, he caught it on the fly. It was a mild straw. No, that was the guy. That was his buddy who went up and almost went up in the stands. Yeah, okay. I know well, Lane Lane Kiffin was catching stuff from the stands uh, at, a, at a Tennessee yeah, game. That's, that's a big right. one in college football. Well, well, well. Speaking of uh, baseball, one guy that won't be throwing anything for a while is Trevor Bauer. Major League Baseball has recently dished out the longest suspension in their history. Tina. Yeah. So. Um, you know, in, in, in combination with that, Joe, so earlier this week, Allie Dodgers pitcher Trevor Bauer filed a defamation suit, um, which is all linked to the reason why he was suspended. So this lawsuit is against the San Diego woman who he claims falsely accused him of sexual misconduct. Bauer signed a three-year, $102 million contract with the Dodgers in 2020, and he's been on administrative leave um, since the beginning of July, and he still, paces, he still faces possible discipline from Major League Baseball. So the alleged victim in this case had obtained a temporary restraining order against Bauer last June. Two months after that, a judge denied her request for a five-year extension of the order, stating that the evidence showed Bauer never went beyond the boundaries of what they mutually consented to in terms of the sexual encounters between the two of them. And in February, prosecutors had declined to press um, criminal charges. So in this defamation suit, Bauer claims that the rough encounters they had were consensual and that this woman actually had actively pursued him after their first encounter um, so that they could have another. And the suit goes further to claim that he participated in both encounters, giving her as what he said, exactly what she requested, but that the real goal, according to his allegations, was for her to lure him into um, laying the groundwork for a financial settlement and for a sexual assault claim. Two days after that second encounter, the woman filed a false police report, according to his allegations, and um, she had accused Bauer of sexually assaulting her. Bauer's lawsuit alleges 
she's pursued these bogus criminal and civil actions against him, has made false and malicious statements and generated a media blitz to his detriment and severe damage. And he's also actually named um, her lawyer in the lawsuit. This is one of several suits that Bowers filed. He's also filed a lawsuit against The Athletic and one of its former writers. Um, they claimed that they, he claims that they defamed him when he, when they claimed that the woman's skull was fractured during one of the encounters. Um, he's also filed another defamation suit against the sports news website, Deadspin, and its managing editor. Editor also defamation relating to um, this purported skull fracture, which had later been corrected in the press and her CT scan had established that she hadn't had a, a skull fracture. So a real mess here, Rich. Well, yeah, I mean, I want to get to two, two, two points of this with our guests here. Um, yeah, we'll get you in a second. Cause I know you've done several podcasts of uh, the con conduct detrimental on these topics. We'll get to you in a second, but Kevin, there seems to be a trend and this actually plays into what we're going to talk about with Johnny Depp in a second. You know, the Me Too movement um, has had its sort of ups and downs in terms of, uh, you know, some of the approach of the litigants. And right now it seems to be at a, uh, in a situation where, like Johnny Depp, is actually alleging that he was the victim. Uh, Trevor Bauer is turning around and suing his accusers, saying that he's actually the victim of defamation. What are your thoughts on, you know, that approach? And again, um, it's an interesting legal strategy because you do want to give victims their voice and give them their uh, their due deference. On the other hand, if you're the alleged abuser, this seems to be a legal tactic that more of them are taking. Yeah, and it's certainly not the if you want to be, I, I guess in, in his terms, he he's always been a very outspoken guy, even before. Uh, all of these things arose. He he had ways of how he liked to talk about pitching and how he liked to develop pitches. And he's always been very outspoken on his YouTube channel and things. So this is just kind of how he operates as a human being too. It's not going to make him look like a good person in the public eye, just going out and attacking um, someone who is alleging that she was sexually assaulted. Um I just I think it's interesting that he is taking the approach that he wants to tell everybody he's innocent, he's innocent, he's innocent. Most of the time when people are out there, you know, crying that they were they're actually the victims. And especially, like I said, during the, the sign of the times that we're in, it's it's an approach that is always going to raise a lot of question marks um, across news mediums, across people who are writing about it, across people who are podcasting about it, across people who are just talking about it. And um I know he's now chosen to, like I said, name those defamation lawsuits against people who've written stuff about him. I just think it's very, it's a very bold move on his part to go out and put a giant notes app thing on Twitter and his social media feeds about how I'm innocent. I did not. I, there's, there's clearly two sides to the story and to say that you're completely innocent and I, I did nothing wrong. It certainly raises the you know alarm bells in a lot of people's minds. Yeah, there's definitely a consciousness more than ever, I think, uh, Kevin and, and Dan, of you're playing to, you know, at least two or three different uh, groups of people. You're playing to an actual jury that might uh, convict you. And you're also playing to the public at large. And sometimes you're playing to your employer also. Right. I mean, Trevor Bauer wants to pitch again, presumably in Major League Baseball. Uh, it didn't work. 
because what we saw, again, as Tina mentioned, was the largest penalty in Major League Baseball history. I want to ask you and maybe explain to our listeners briefly why there's a different. Why would he be charged or why would he be thrown out of baseball for two years when the police didn't find enough uh, evidence to uh, charge him with anything? Um, why does baseball have a different standard? Explain that to us. That for me, I'm not. Um, yeah, so ba- baseball standard for suspension of the domestic violence policy is called, something called just cause. So you have to show there was just cause that they found some specific conduct that triggered the DV policy. And then you have to show just cause for the actual length of the punishment. So I, they, they might have one. I think that's certainly possible. It just causes a lower standard than obviously beyond all reasonable doubt. It's certainly lower standard than preponderance of the evidence. So let's make up a number, guys. Let's say it's 15%, right? That the, that the person did it by 15% or 25%. Um, that's how someone could be suspended on, in Major League Baseball, yet uh, you know, exonerated um, in civil court. There was a, a, a temporary restraining order hearing for Trevor Bauer uh, several months ago, which the judge actually didn't just say that, that uh, the burden wasn't established. actually went so far as to say the accuser's petition was materially misleading. So um, that that would give you an indication uh, why Trevor Bauer is filing, uh, you know, in a defamation suit. If, uh, if the judge in the case were to say that the, the petition that was filed was materially misleading, you know, that could be uh, construed as some type of a synonym or euphemism for maybe actual malice. So do you it's think sad. there's more? Do you think there's more that we don't know? Because why would Major League Baseball right. take such a dramatic step, given the, the weakness of that evidence? Well, there's two other. So there's three accusers in total. So if, uh, if everyone's doing the math here, there's three defamation suits, but all of those defamation suits relate to the same accuser. So that's this San Diego woman, which I'll say is uh, the, the suit that relates to Bauer's time with the Dodgers. And then there's an Indian based suit uh, when he was with the Cleveland Indians, now the Guardians. And then there's one when he was uh, in, the, in the farm league with the Columbus Clippers. So those two cases, the earlier ones with the Cleveland Indians and the, and the Clippers, those cases were spoke to Major League Baseball, but they didn't make it into the temporary restraining order case. They were deemed inadmissible and irrelevant to a hearing that dealt with the restraining order. So that's how, you know, maybe that case with the the Dodgers case isn't that strong, but the cumulative, uh, you know, buildup of cases, maybe that's what Rob Manfred is saying. Hey, uh, I have three sources of evidence here and that in their totality, he could be saying that's just cause. But, you know, the issue, Rich, is under the domestic violence policy, no one can talk about what evidence actually right. related to the suspension. So we're under a veil of secrecy up until uh, Bauer appeals this and there's some findings. So no one's going to actually know what baseball found. So And the bottom uh, line is, the bottom line is too bad. Like that's what you bargained for in the collective bargaining agreement in right. all sports. And you bargained away your due process rights, right? So people need to understand that even though you might not have enough evidence against you to be charged criminally because you agreed to these these uh, collective bargaining agreements, you agree to this higher standard that your employer gets to impose on you, even for a suspicion that doesn't lead to uh, enough uh, uh, to charge you criminally. Yeah, the only the only thing I'll say just to point out, and Christina, you know, explained it well, like, you know, this is a record breaking suspension. So we can't make light of that. There's 15, 15 players have been suspended under domestic violence policy. Some of them have been arrested and charged. So I can certainly say that the evidence there is probably stronger than Bauer, who was not charged criminally or anything like that. Uh, Aroldis Chapman, you know, everyone I think knows that name uh, in, in baseball circles, fired a gun in the direction of uh, his partner, missed, but uh, he was given a 30-game suspension under the policy. I'm certainly not going to be the one to say whose worst allegations of sexual assault or firing a gun at somebody, but one was issued a two-year suspension, the only other, and the other one was issued a 30-game suspension. So there seems to be a 
wide gap between those two punishments, which doesn't really seem to make sense. And then we hired him here. And then we hired him here in Chicago. There, there we go. And then the Yankees took him back afterwards. I'm not sure how that worked out for us over here. Isn't it interesting, no. too, that the that the Dodgers still, you know, I think they're kind of waiting for it to play out, too, because he's still on the roster, even though he hasn't he's only pitched a you know a handful of games for them. And I think they even posted that, you know, the release where they're like, oh, we're going to wait for everything to play out here. And it, it's, it's it was really it's a really interesting point, Kevin, because I listen. I watched that statement closely and listened to it. I read it. They used his first name. They said, we're going to, you know, give uh Trevor, you know, just the fact they use his first name to me was a little tricky because it's almost sympathetic to him. It's in the light of that suspension and all these allegations. To me, that was a little bit of a weird uh, PR move. I don't know. I, I, well, I totally agree. I, I was going to say, though, I mean, uh, you know, I think the, the comments you guys are making is like, why is Trevor Bauer suing for defamation and left to right? He's got to do something right where I think uh, and we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about it. But Johnny Depp is suing for libel right now to try to protect his reputation. And Bauer is, uh, I think, certainly grasping at straws to remain in baseball. But this suspension takes him through the remainder of his three or hundred million dollar contract. And there's no guarantee on the other end that he gets another deal. So I think if he wins and obviously these defamation cases will take two, three years to litigate. I think that's his best shot to get back in baseball, to win and show that at least some portion of these claims could have possibly been made with malice. And then maybe someone takes a chance on a former Cy Young winner. But you can't hurt them for, for lack of effort. They've certainly uh, been very litigious this past couple of months. Joe, Dan Lust just uh, took your segue right, right, right from under you. Uh, I'm going to jump in on the Johnny Depp trial, but I want to ask you, Joe, uh, really quickly. I mean, you just, our listeners should know that uh, I believe you called your first ever Major League Baseball game today, Called literally called up from the minors. Congratulations to Joe. But uh, yes or no, will Trevor Bauer ever pitch in the majors against Joe? Yeah, I don't know. That that's uh, that's pretty tough. Um, I, right now, I would lean towards no. Um, just judging on because the two year suspension would end with his Dodgers contract, so then he would have to be signed by another team. And I don't know if anyone is going to be willing to take that on because that that would be a you know not that this is what matters most, but that would be a PR nightmare. Uh, you know. Will he even be able to pitch in the majors? So then, I don't think he ever. I don't think he ever pitches again. I mean, I forget the guy's name, but he was a closer for the uh, Blue Jays. Dan probably knows him. He was like one of the best pitchers in baseball. He's gone. He's like he, he's you know he's in his prime, but uh, but he's never pitched again. And it's been a couple. Yeah, years. the the Astros got him. I don't know why I can't think of his name. It's uh, it's uh, it's Osuna, Roberto oh, Osuna. Helped him exactly. to yeah. a, yeah. him to a World go. Series, but at, but at what cost? Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah, well, famous situation. Let's talk about Johnny Depp, Tita, because uh, we're all following the trial closely. You know, this week, Amber Heard's been testifying, um, you know, really dramatic testimony. I was interested to hear from our earlier guest uh, who said that she doesn't believe anything Amber Heard is saying. I, I don't know. I've been watching it. I think what she's saying is fairly compelling. I do think that she has some credibility problems. And clearly, I think to a lot of the points we're talking about, she's really losing in the court of public opinion. And is that also translating to the jury? I mean, you know, social media is really pro Johnny. Uh, the actual people in the courtroom who are not jury members and outside of the courtroom seem to be, uh, you know, very pro Johnny. Is that more of a celebrity thing because he's much more well known than her? Or is his testimony way more credible than hers? I mean, there's so many different angles to this. You know, one of which is Johnny Depp's attorney seems to be arguing that, yes, Johnny Depp is a cokehead. Yes, he's a alcoholic and you know yes he's a strange guy but that's what you get with johnny depp and everyone knows that's the way he was but he wasn't a physical abuser 
Well, I mean, I think that, as you said, Rich, we could spend hours unpacking this. Um, and unfortunately, we have about 30 seconds. But I'd say at the end of the day, I think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. I think that I, I agree that Johnny Depp's lawyers are out lawyering Amber Heard's lawyers. Um, that being said, I think at the end of the day, you've got two pretty troubled people. Um, I think that Johnny Depp, you know, yes, he's probably more popular than Amber Heard is. If we're looking at his celebrity status and just his likability because of his career. But at the end of the day, and I guess I, you know, applaud him. I don't even know if applaud is the right word for his candor in terms of what his limitations and weaknesses are. But at the end of the day, I do think that you've got two people who probably really loved each other at one point in a relationship that was clearly very dysfunctional and was one that they probably should not have been in bringing the worst out in each other um, and seeing the world from two very different perspectives. And I think that's what we're seeing playing out right now. Uh, Kevin, what, what are you hearing? Uh, how is this uh, playing out uh, among listeners and callers in the court of public opinion? Listeners are obviously just disappointed. I mean, no one likes to, you know, see this happen to anybody, let alone, you know, an actor that often was looked upon. People, again, knew they had knew he had the troubled past, knew he was an alcoholic and things. But I think a lot of people are it's sad when things like this arise, because as Christina just mentioned, these two were probably, you know, probably had a very loving relationship at one point or another. And then you know, it, no one wants to see someone, a hero that they see on screen, um, come out and be accused of just horrible acts of, of violence and assault. Um, and I think I've, I've caught a little bit of the, I haven't watched a lot of this. Um, we've been doing a lot more local stuff, but I, the, the courts and like the live views that I've seen of this, her descriptions of these acts are so vivid and so descriptive and it honestly brings you to tears sometimes to, to you're just like holy cow like that can happen to a person and it's the fact that she's describing it with such you know with such you know adjectives and is is can you can paint the picture um of being in the room almost it it's hard not to you know believe her and and that that's kind of the i think a lot of people are kind of going through that right now where they don't know what side to choose at the moment. There's, it, it's just a very, a lot of people are just, you know, it's an unfortunate situation and it's sad to see, you know, a movie star and someone looked upon in the public light who was once a positive figure looked upon with all this disdain now. Let's merge a couple of aspects from our last two topics and onto the HBO series winning time. Jerry Westrich isn't pleased with his depiction on the show. Speaking of, speaking of violent, abusive people, if you believe winning time, the, uh, the uh, HBO uh, show that's going right now with the 80s Lakers, uh, Jerry West would, is a, a raging alcoholic womanizer who can't control his temper. I mean, very different from the logo that we all grew up watching. I mean, Jerry West is literally the logo of the NBA and uh, he's upset and uh, he's threatening the lawsuit. And, um, you know, the question is, how successful would that be? I know, Dan, you've got some opinions on this that you've expressed in your podcast uh, we don't have a lot of time, but, but Tina, I mean, you know, celebrities are subject to some artistic license when they're depicted. Uh, there's a difference there between that and, you know, maybe taking it too far. But I think the bigger question when it comes to a Jerry West is 
what are the damages, right? Like any, all, a lot of these stories that we consider, there's liability and damages. And is Jerry West really suffering? He's an older man. He's, you know, I think still in the front office of an NBA team. What would be the damages if you believe the way he's portrayed in the show? Well, it's reputational damage, right? I mean, that's the biggest thing I can think of in this situation. And, you know, the way that I'm sure he's looking at it, too, is his legacy, his pride, his ego. I mean, that's what drives a lot of these things, right? As well as the fact that his family, whatever family he has, when he when he passes away, they're going to be, you know, tainted with whatever um, issues there have been with his um, legacy and with his reputation. Dan, you'd have to show actual malice on the part of the plaintiff, in this case, Jerry West. Do you think there's enough evidence of actual malice for a Jerry West lawsuit to prevail? It's going to be tough. But Rich, I will say uh, it's a very different Im- image that we've seen on the logo, except when you zoom in on the logo, you can see Jerry <laughs> holding a gin and tonic. Very close. I don't want to get in right. trouble here. That's not I'm, actually true. I'm waking up on the floor of his motel room. Yeah, it's, it's, that's the logo. It's actually Jerry laying on the floor. <laughs> that's that's what we've been looking at this whole time. Yeah, I, I think, you know, obviously HBO uh, is no stranger to fictional documentaries. So and that's been their their public statement saying, you know, this is not intended to be, you know, an actual storytelling. The, the problem is the book that this is based on Showtime. And they're very clear that this is based on on that book by Jeff Perlman. And it's a completely different recital of what happened. So there is a moment I think everyone that watches the show will remember on the first episode, they're on the uh, the putting range or they're, they're doing some putting on the golf course. And Jerry Buss, John C. Riley's character, turns to the camera and says, you know, people like Jerry until they hear the real story. And this is it. So I, I've seen some experts prognosticate that that comment and say, hey, everything else is supposed to be fictionalized. But what we're telling you about Jerry is actually closer to the truth. So um, I don't I don't think they'll rise certainly to actual malice, but I, I do think Jerry probably has a colorable claim to bring it into court. It's not going to get tossed out with some motion instantaneously. I, I do think there is at least something here that's worth exploring. I wonder what Jerry Krause's reaction would be if he could see his depiction of himself on the Netflix and ESPN documentary of the last dance with Chicago Bulls, because that had a lot of backlash as well. Um, Tina, a very scary moment in LA. Comedian Dave Chappelle was attacked on stage. Yeah, so this has been a pretty disturbing week in news. And this was right there, you know, right after the issue with the Supreme Court opinion leak. Um, This news broke earlier this week. Dave Chappelle um, was attacked by an audience member on Tuesday night while he was performing at the Hollywood Bowl in Los Angeles. The suspect tackled Chappelle as he was exiting the stage. Um, that suspect has been identified as Isaiah Lee and is now in custody. He was initially taken to the hospital for medical treatment. Um, his weapon was a replica handgun that had a knife blade. Um, Chappelle went on with the show. Jamie Foxx and Chris Rock helped to calm the crowd. Chappelle actually ended up introducing the headliner at the end of the evening. And so he kept moving on with the show. Um, The motive of the attack remains unclear. And it's also unclear whether an official police report has been filed. Um, The big news that broke actually overnight is that the L.A. District Attorney's Office has decided not to bring any felony charges against the attacker. Um, There's been a lot of chatter on social media among many live venue owners across the country who are understandably expressing outrage, given that in their mind, this was a clearly premeditated attack with a knife 
Um, and the fact that it's not being considered a felony, many of them are saying what would be a felony. He has been charged with four misdemeanor crimes, including battery, possession of a weapon with intent to assault, unauthorized access to the stage area during a performance, and commission of an act that delays the event or interferes with the performer. So a very scary moment, Rich. Actually, a lot of people are talking about how this reminds them of um, the Will Smith incident. Yeah, Kevin, my question to you is, um, if you're going to sneak a knife in to an event, do you sneak it in as another weapon? That That's my question. This guy is a gun. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, like, for real. I mean, like, like literally, I was at a concert. Yes, I was in, I, I was in, um, uh, at, um, man, I even. Jazz Fest? Jazz Fest. That's to show you. I had a very memorable concert. Jazz Fest. I was at Jazz Fest yesterday, and some of my group snuck in vodka in a suntan lotion thing, right? That you can understand. But sneaking in a knife and a gun, not the brightest criminal I've ever seen. No, and he clearly had a bone to pick with Chappelle, who, has been in the news the last couple of months with, you know, some of the specials that he's done talking about transgender rights and gay rights. And um, a lot of people have turned on him in the social sphere um, because, you know, it's and he's gone on to explain himself and he's gone on to say because uh, he's he's drawn a lot of comparisons with, um, you know, black rights versus transgender rights and thing and things of that nature. And this guy clearly um I don't know if we obviously don't know the motive yet, but one can assume that with a polarizing comedian who has strong opinions on things like that and says things that can really turn someone the wrong way, this guy clearly had a problem with something that he's said in the past in one of his comedy specials. But I, I can't believe that. Um, how how do, how would how do you even sneak in a knife into the? That's just. Yeah, that's just pretty. That's pretty crazy. And um, good on the security team for making up for it in the end. But the the person who let him in, you know, not when are we going to get to the point of maybe having metal detectors in all well, in all, um, you know, events? We see them at sporting events now, but maybe now we're going to have to have them at theaters, too. Well, yes and no. Good on the security. The two security guys who ran on first, they literally took a tumble. They 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 slipped and slid. And then it, it's like when you have to rely on Buster Rhymes. To be your security and stop the hell out of the guy. That's not great security. Uh, um, but, you know, Dan, it kind of reminds me, Dennis Miller used to have a the great comedian. Dennis Miller used to have a great line about the uh, the assassination of Lee Harvey Oswald. He's like, oh, yeah, Jack Ruby's here. The, lo- the owner of the local strip bar is here. He's got a handgun. Let's get him down here. Let's get him into the into the garage. Like, how does this keep happening? We saw the Olivia Wilde situation where, you know, Olivia Wilde is introducing her film in front of like a couple thousand exhibitors in Vegas. And the process server literally hands her papers on stage. Of course, Will Smith. Then this, like, where is security? What what the hell is going on? I mean, at least for the Chappelle context, I, I think, uh, at least in the law, we talk about deterrence. Maybe the fact that they didn't catch him before he they, they touched Chappelle. But after the fact, I mean, anyone seen the pictures? They, yeah, his arm clear, is like... Dislocated backwards arm. He got kind of turned into a pretzel. So I, I think that's going to serve as a deterrence, right? Will, Will Smith, to some extent, didn't really get any come up and see slapped and then went back to his seat. He got an award, but he got a, he got the world's most coveted award. Well, he actually was punished having to go speak on the mic uh, and accept the uh, award. And that's probably his least, least finest hour. But for the, for the Chappelle guy that went on stage, I can't imagine anyone's going to go up and and mess with Gabe Chappelle again after what happened. So maybe that's the best deterrent, right? Those pictures going viral after the fact of this really kind of grotesque dislocation there. I wish I could say the photo. Sorry, Joe. I was looking at the photo right now and I, I just, I, 
you know, he's bloody nose. It looks like it's broken. He's got some cuts, cuts under his eye. Real gruesome looking picture, like you said. There's a backward shoulder to, to even make it uh, a little more graphic. You know, viewer, <laughs> viewer discretion is advised. Well, I, once again, great segue, Dan, because I wish this could be the first time that we're talking about improper viewing of pornography. But this time it's gone up to a British lawmaker. Legal angle. We always want to keep it legal on this show. It's a, this is a, a legislator in, uh, in England who uh, is Neil Parrish member of the conservative party. He stepped down this week after a moment that he described as madness. Now, the great thing is he was caught looking at porn while on the job. His job happens to be in the house of, of parliament in, in the UK. Um, but the great thing is he admitted that the first time he looked at it, he was looking at porn. He said he, it was, he said it was an accident, right? Now I've seen some, and he was looking at what he was trying to look at some tractors. He, he's the chairman of the house's environmental Food and Rural Affairs Committee. He says he was trying to look at a tractor website and then stumbled onto a porn site with a similar name and watched it for a bit. Now, I'll just say, I've watched some weird porn in my life, but I don't know how you stumble onto porn from a tractor website. What kind of deviant stuff was this guy looking at? And then he, wa- he looked at it a second time. Uh, he looked at it a second time. Wasn't he sitting next to a couple of female colleagues when he did it? Yes. So they could actually see it on his phone, too. And that's how he got found out. That is correct. Um, So, uh, yeah, uh, he stepped down. Tina, the the prime minister of uh, England, uh, Boris Johnson, has said that looking at porn, no matter where you are at work, is unacceptable. Um, Presumably not if you work for a porn company. But aside from that. (laughs) Not if you're a porn star. No. I mean, this was just idiotic. I, I mean, there's just no other word that comes to mind other than idiotic. Yeah. Um, Kevin, do you buy the story that it was it was by accident? I don't buy that it was by accident. No, I for whatever. Again, though, why? Why at work? Why in the big room? I mean, if you're really like. If that's your. Uh, what's defense mechanism to stress, which I, th- I think I was, I, I briefly read over. I, this is the first time I've seen this story. If it, why, why are you doing it in, in, in the room with other people go and find a private area of the room and look at it. If that's really what you need to do. I, I don't believe that this was by accident. It's just I a mean, very strange and it's a good thing. He's stepping down. I, he should not, you can't do that at work. Come in on. his defense. I can't believe I'm saying these words, Dan, but in his defense, he was a member of the Environment, Food, and Rural Affairs Committee. I mean, I gotta believe some of those hearings gotta be a little, a little boring, a little dry. I mean, I, I, I read his statement. Uh, I hadn't seen the story before. Uh, before today, we were prepping for the show, and his statement is basically: the first time was by accident, but the second time I did it on purpose. Which <laughs> I, I don't know who was advising him to say that, but. Uh, I, I wish him well in his future endeavors, but I'm not sure there will be any more endeavors for him because that seems like a pretty unemployable statement to make. Uh, guess what, Joe? Uh, there, there's got to be some enterprising porn company out there in the tractor porn subculture who's going to hire this guy. What better publicity for the tractor porn industry than hiring this ex-legislator to uh, maybe participate? That, that should be the video, too. The first time he's like, oh, I, I didn't know <laughs> what, what I walked into. What is this porn you speak of? And then the music starts and it's all. 
Well, we will. We don't have any ending music here on the Legal Faceoff podcast, but that's going to do it for the Legal Grab Bag and LFO. Big thanks to Kevin and Dan here on Legal Grab Bag. It's always big thanks to Rich, to Tina, our producers, Ben Anderson, Joey Christopoulos, and Yvonne Barbosa as well. We will talk to you in a couple of weeks along with all our guests. Thank you for joining us on Legal Faceoff. Catch us on WGNRadio.com, wherever you find our podcasts as well. We'll talk to you next time. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Faceoff. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget the